Hello and welcome to the Modern Nutrition Podcast, the podcast all about education today. I'd like to say a quick thank you to the Smartwash Car Wash, our sponsor, which provides washing and valet services all across London, Essex and Kent. Today's guest is Professor Daniel Richardson, social psychologist at UCL. Daniel was actually my old professor and his evidence and inquiry lessons as part of the BSc Psychology course at UCL helped inspire my modern minds classes where I teach mental health studies to sick formers. We cover everything from his early days in school and at university at Oxford, as well as how he moved up the kind of academic ladder to become the lecturer he is today. Thank you so much to Daniel for coming on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy. So, firstly, so he's asking about kind of what your experiences of education were, for better or worse. So, um, reading your book. Man oh, versus mind. <laughs> One of six copies, I think. <laughs> um, I realized uh, you kind of made a bit of a comment about like how uh, you're in the state school system, um, like, like I was up till 16, and then you had like an experience of like being in a private school, just like you had like a brief one, two weeks where you did a kind of drop in at Eton, and that like yeah. had a big effect on you. Um, not to bias your answer too much or anything, but could you tell me a bit about your experience? of the state school system how was it for you um and what did what did you like school what was it like um yes so i think i got a lot out of the the state school system i was in a comprehensive um in wooden bassett now royal wooden bassett <laughs> and yeah it was it was a great environment i think very safe environment i sort of um strained at the leash a little bit to do new things mm-hmm. So sort of applied for all different stuff. I actually, and I got insanely lucky. So this is a terrible thing to admit. I've never paid for any education ever <laughs> because I was the year, I was before they introduced the fees and I never paid for any school. Um, and that's obviously horrible to admit to anyone sort of under 40 that that was possible. But yeah, I, so I went to a state school and then my dad worked for a big computer company they did a scholarship to um, a school in America and over Academy. It's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read Catcher in the Rye, it's the school that he gets kicked out <laughs> of, which is very <laughs> uh, So I actually studied psychology there when I was 16 as well for a, a summer. Again, didn't pay for that. And then, you know, when I was um, 17, I think, uh, I went to Eton just for two weeks because they have a charter that they have to teach the peasant folk of the land, <laughs> which... Mm-hmm. translates nowadays into state school kids so they mm-hmm. took two people from sort of various places in the west country and yeah led us through the golden gates for a few brief moments mm-hmm. uh with just insanely good teachers who were sort of like dead poet society every lesson i mean <laughs> um yeah and i think that those experiences you know i still can recite t.s Eliot poems that i won't that we uh that we study um but mostly i think it's about um broadening your expectations a little bit and feeling like even though you're a little boy from Swindon you can sort of apply to all this stuff so I think yeah the the valuable long-term thing is just realizing that you know these things are possible and you can apply for stuff and you'll get turned down 99 times but the 100th it might work and so it's worth it's worth doing definitely and do you think so I think about I mean I kind of chime with this as well because also I was at a state school albeit a really good one so I kind of don't want the kind of pity narrative around it because it's like a beacon school it's a really good state school it's not kind of uh is is something to be proud of really um I had those 
a little bits where I, you know they sent me to Queen Mary for a week um, where you did a maths course and even though I didn't wasn't absolutely fascinated by maths that kind of wasn't the point it was just showing your university then another week you know a summer program sent me to Manchester for a, a weekend you got to stay there and do chemistry for a weekend and all this kind of thing thinking about how much you think about the situation in terms of social psychology you know power of the situation do you think those things are then really important and really effective do you think those things matter or do you think they're and drops in the ocean like a week here or a weekend there doesn't make a difference what do you think no I, I think i think they're incredibly valuable um and it's more about sort of shifts your perspective on yourself rather than what you actually learn and sort of the teaching experience mm-hmm. another reason i think they're very valuable is um when i uh when i started as an undergraduate at oxford we were uh, my philosophy tutor began by saying that look around you and I looked and there was these other losers from state school who were as awkward and as nervous as me. He said, you'll learn more from those people than you will from me. And I thought that was completely ridiculous because he's the world expert in Immanuel Kant and he's the professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that turned out to be very true. And it's the things that you remember and the things that you value are those arguments with your peers after the philosophy lecture. You don't remember the yeah. lecture itself. You remember having that argument. So really that peer group and the people around you are hugely influential and doing things like hopping to these places for a week for a year you meet these other people who also are obsessed with german philosophy which few 16 year olds were um and that sort of contacting a peer group and thinking i sort of belong at this level with these people gets you very excited about meeting people like that so i think sort of the social peer group element of these things Mm. end up studying with those guys but you make a few friends and you realize that there are people about like you it's all about sort of finding your tribe and being excited about that i think I was going to say, crazy kind of like in-groups that you probably didn't know existed, I suppose, is this kind of like aspirational state source kids who want to do just as well and kind of identify with academics as like a something they can go into. Um, so is that obvious to you? You want to kind of go be an, an academic of some kind and social psychology made the most sense. Um, I don't know if that like struck you at university or beforehand or like, was that was that obvious to you? Um, yeah, I mean... I just sort of started school at four and never occurred to me to leave, really. <laughs> I, I don't have a very sort of positive story. I just always enjoyed studying and thinking. And yeah, I went to university to try and be a philosopher and took psychology at the same time because I thought it was interesting, but really didn't get on with psychology apart from a, one, uh, a couple modules and my dissertation. It didn't sort of excite me that much. But then after th- three years, I realized that it's really, really hard to be a philosopher because you know we've had them for thousands of years and a lot of the work's been done so it was hard to sort of contribute to that field so i decided to go do a psychology phd instead and then only like the first or well the first year sort of fell in love with the process of science and doing things that way mm-hmm. i looked down on psychology because i was a philosopher and a theorist and I <laughs> myself with mere data i'd be a pure conceptual analysis and i feel the complete opposite you know that stuff yeah, definitely. Not pure philosophy anymore. What's the oh, is it like a king philosopher? What's the phrase? It's like the kind of the idea of like philosophers can like kind of sit back in their chair and like yeah. know you know what the world really is. Kind of sit back. It's kind of very hands off. Whereas I suppose the psychology work you do now is all very practical. And then the teaching I remember you doing is very practical in the sense that it isn't just you kind of standing there and saying, "Look how clever I am." It's actually trying to be much more unpretentious in that is actually trying to level with the students a lot more um, yeah it's uh, i remember spending about a year studying uh 
British philosophers, the empiricist philosophers Hume and uh, other people, and all these debates about where knowledge comes from and where it's constructed. And I studied all this stuff and revised for it. And then I started grad school. And it turns out you don't have to just sit in your armchair talking about these things. You can literally play a game with an eight-month-old baby yeah, yeah, and actually find answers to those questions with yeah. evidence and you can move forward. And that just sort of blew my mind that you can just sort of, yeah, play games with kids and answer long-standing philosophical questions. So we don't have to go back to the philosophy. We can move forward. Yeah, yeah. That's very exciting. Definitely. And then so, um, I mean, what were your experiences like at Oxford then? So moving into Oxford from Swindon, um, did that feel like you're kind of you're eating your time to be like, oh, I'm kind of, um, yeah, I'd kind of be uh, enraptured by kind of education and kind of t- your time to shine in a way? Or, I mean, what was it like for you? Uh, it was a very intense time. <laughs> on sort of every single level uh and academically of course the big shift is the tutorial system that you're just talking with you there's one maybe another person then one mm-hmm. world expert there and they're analyzing reading and debating and that's sort of really intense um what is that a crucible you know you really feel mm-hmm. the heat is on you uh that i found very challenging um and basically the oxford system was at the time and i suspect sort of still is i don't think it's deliberately set up this way but basically they expect you to sort of break a little bit in your first and second year mm-hmm. with the pressure with the idea that you're surrounded by people and you're not the smartest person by any means you're now in the bottom third and used to being near the top mm-hmm. uh and they accept that it's too hard and they threw too much at you and they sort of expect you to snap mm-hmm. and then if you're lucky your second or third year, you sort of glue yourself back together not everyone does but it's quite a quite a harsh environment i found maybe it's a bit better now but um yeah I th- it's the kind of like they expect you to go through like a kind of cambellian like hero's journey where you like hit the you know hit your yeah. lowest ebb before rising as this like academic hero <laughs> so um so i suppose that is i find the difference between having kind of privilege before university and at university it's kind of before you're actually given lots of space to think and it's okay, there's exams coming at some point in the future, but actually you're kind of more having fun with it. Whereas it sounds like at kind of elite universities in general, not just Oxford elsewhere, it's kind of much more, is really intense and it's a bit less, you don't have loads of space, like read one thing and think about it for a month. You kind of, it is one thing after another, after another, after another. I think that's kind of a difference I've I've found. Um, and then and after that- really was the difference between the state school kids and the private school kids. You know, we'd come and have these social things and mm-hmm. get invited to philosophers' drinks. And, you know, it was just, this sounds like I went to school in the medieval period, uh, but they were passing snuff around the table. And yeah. I'd never seen snuff. I'd read about <laughs> you know, novels, but they knew exactly where to put it and how to do it. And they knew where to pass the port. And also, they all seemed to sort of know each other and were at ease socially. Yeah. And, you know, it's only later I was talking to some and, you know, they said, well, yeah, we have like we have dinner party conversation classes. We're taught how to do that, how to be charming. And that sort of Boris Johnson affableness is all trained. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I think I don't. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are different levels to it in the sense that when I did go to private school in sixth form, um, I've, I kind of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder like my dad's like a punk rocker Marxist like I got on a bursary as well so I was kind of like going in with the kind of I'm not one of you like I really wanted them to know that in a in a kind of weird way but I think I didn't have the full 
public boarding school experience because I was in a day school in the centre of London, which isn't right, right. which isn't the same as living out in the West Country with the kind of posh uniforms and kind of so it is a bit different. So I think they kind of yeah that kind of subgroup that kind of um you know the kind of snuff uh taking kind of port whatever I think that is that's kind of like a a category of a category of private school kids, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, my the one I went to in Magdalen had strong links with Eton, and mm. they were very cliquey, and uh, what's the fact that I... Uh, yeah, David Cameron's government... David Cameron's first cabinet had more people who went to my college than it did women. <laughs> There's everything yeah. about diversity. In yeah, that. I think in a, in a way that makes more sense to me nowadays, because, like, running the business, you do kind of want to include your friends just because you're scared and also they'll do things uh without expecting too much money and all this kind of thing it kind of makes it more sense in a way and you're kind of that's the pe- those are the people you trust in this time where you're making big decisions i kind of get a bit more now not to say it should exist especially in the public sphere but uh yeah interesting and then um you went on to um santa cruz after that so that kind of kind of struck me as like really interesting as well it's such a big environment change and it almost felt like um it's kind of this kind of a almost like utopian thing of like education is the way you travel education is the way you kind of get these exciting opportunities was that what kind of santa cruz was um to you really yeah so uh the move from oxford to the states was a bit i mean it's, it was mostly due to incompetence um i decided to <laughs> that i wanted to do this psychology thing um and by that time all the sort of deadlines for applying for, for for England are gone and I sort of wasn't in the right place. Um, so I just, I was going to say I Googled grad schools, but this was before Google. So I AltaVista <laughs> on the one computer in our college that was connected um, and found four like uh, Berkeley and Princeton and uh, a couple others. And I'd heard of one of them, Cornell, because I was reading the biography of... Um, um, Carl Sagan was it mm-hmm. Carl Sagan? No, it was Feynman, Richard Feynman, uh, who had just been kicked out of Cornell for sleeping with another professor's wife. So I'd heard of Cornell and I put that in, and that's the only one that gave me an offer. The others just refused because I was a foreigner, so I'd cost more and so on. Um, and it turns out the professor who got my application. I got an offer to go to the States, fully paid bursary again, never paid for my schooling. <laughs> um, I got the offer because he was obsessed with Monty Python. Mm-hmm. I ran the comedy group in Oxford that some of them came from. So we thought, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, he thought I had a double first because he didn't know what a 2 1 was. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I got nothing and went to Cornell. It's funny, like, how like um, there's so much about making the system as fair as physically possible nowadays. Then a lot of people's breaks came from misunderstandings. Even, oh. even this podcast, to be honest, the first person we had on, it was because I emailed saying, would you consider the idea of a podcast, thinking he'll never get back? I'd read his book, I was very excited. And they're like, oh yeah, what dates can you do? And I was like, there's no there's no podcast. I was just asking you about the concept of a podcast. Like, yeah. uh, but then you just kind of run with it, you know, all the kind of rest of it. Um, no, really. It's that sort of attitude, you, you know, of you emailing him in the first place or me sending off an application to America of just trying your luck. 
Yeah, definitely. That sort of uh, just being happy to roll the dice is, I think, I think I worry kids won't do as much nowadays because they feel a little bit more limited by their their environment. Yeah, and there's kind of um, really like you really only need one in the sense that let's say two universities said yes to you, you couldn't attend both, so you oh, could. Yeah. Only- you could only take one offer, so you may as well only get one. You know, in that sense as well. Um, and then, how did you find? Did you find it all like? Well, you came back to the UK, so I don't know how what that means for the US. But how did you find the states compared? Was it like this kind of yeah, exciting kind of a, a opportunity that education had brought you, and you're like, this is all as wonderful as it should be, or was it like uh, more real, more of like a learning process, more balance than that? Oh, it was fabulous. Um, I had a great experience, and doing. Grad school in the states is much better, I think, than this. <laughs> because yeah. um, various practical things. I mean, there's so much science is done in America; it produces so much of the the, the psychology, as and most sciences, I would say. Um, not to say that England doesn't compete or used to be able to before Brexit, but there's just a volume of stuff and communities there that's massive. And also, if you're a graduate student in America, the standard thing that 90% of people do is they teach at the same time they do TA teaching support mm-hmm. and that I thought was an absolutely vital learning experience to be teaching right from the outset yeah and also the PhD can last in mine was uh six years but commonly it's sort of four or five years um so that idea of it's so it's more of an apprenticeship this idea of the more English like field yeah yeah it's just three years and you just do research that's so difficult to learn and to grow in those three years. And, you know, I didn't do an experiment that worked for the first two years. Yeah. Would not have been able to do it in this country. So this idea it's slower, you can grow and you're teaching all the time. It's just such a better personal and um, academic way of learning in the States. So I would recommend anyone to do that. Again, not that doing a PhD in England is bad, but it's just, yeah, yeah. I think it's so much better over there. What do you know why it is different? Um, why why there is that distinction? Um, partly it's sort of the stroke, partly it's the money, partly um, because they obviously they those students are paying a hundred grand to go to somewhere like Stanford or Cornell. It's just insane amounts of money. And because the students are paying more money to go there, there's sort of traditionally there's been more teaching support and that teaching support has fallen on graduate students oh i see i see so so there's a bigger need for a larger number of people running small seminars and doing these things Mm -hmm. Uh, so i think it follows that i mean we're trying to shift ucl in that direction more and each year we increase the number of grad students who are also teaching and sort of moving towards that system very slowly uh but no it's very positive when i went to cornell for six years and then married someone much smarter than me and she got offers at Stanford and MIT who were bidding over mm-hmm. Stanford and they hired me as sort of a postdoc lecturer thing um and then yeah then we had three kids in rapid succession then I was hired at Santa Cruz as a professor mm-hmm. and then we realized do we wanted to come back to this country uh, because even though my wife was a Stanford professor, even though I was a professor too, we actually lived uh, next door to the Google campus in Mountain View. And just we were just surrounded by millionaires. <laughs> Being paid so much more than I probably am now, right? The salaries, uh, my yeah. peers in grad school learn three times as much as me. But it's the context of being in California, which is insanely expensive, being surrounded by literally Google millionaires uh so yeah we could just afford to go to take our kids to one nursery that was just they 
barely kept them alive. It was just like the lowest yeah. rank, insanely expensive. And then we came back to England and, you know, the council runs a free drop-in centre and that was better quality for free. Basically, yeah. we needed the state to help raise our children. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, it's like, um, and that's something I've heard as well about accessibility in general. Uh, it's just like to be an academic um, is a vocation in a lot of ways. Um, the problem with vocations is sometimes they're called vocations because they're not very well paid. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think personally, they use the name of vocation to pay you less. So even if it wasn't badly paid in the first place, they'll be like, well, cut this one down because people are here because they're passionate, you know? Yeah. Um, same reminds me of like nurse pay or doctor pay. Absolutely, like yeah, te- yeah. Teacher pay, school teacher pay. So it kind of reminds me of that. We're uh, going on holiday back to New York and staying with a friend from grad school who was a peer in grad school. And she's mm. a professor at Columbia, so sort of equivalent position to us. Mm. And yeah, she's got a massive flat in Manhattan and she's giving it to us for the week because they're going to their second home in the Hamptons. <laughs> but did they get that money through staying with the American college program? Like, because they stuck it out there. Is that why they have the money or is they, have they just had a commercial interest adjacent to that? No, this is all if you're a professor at a leading university, uh, you're easily earning three figures. I'm sure it's oh, yeah. like 200,000 or something. Yeah. Oh. You know, it's just a different ballpark. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's good for people to know, honestly. It's like to know about that distinction is, is interesting for people to know. Yeah, um, I mean, there are lots of places like state universities in America that won't be earning that much. But if you're at you know, one of the Ivy Leagues or one of the famous ones, yeah. uh, they pay hugely. Or it's like a multi-multi billion dollar business essentially absolutely yeah yeah and like you're the employees you're the staff as well um and so and then you went to reading for going to ucl so what's your experience okay i suppose i'm more kind of biased towards being concerned about ucl but what was your uh, kind of experience at ucl kind of teaching students so i suppose where you you're hired as one of the were you one of the teaching fellows at the same time as doing your research i know there's like a distinction between being a pure researcher and being more interested in teaching but, um, yeah, that's a more recent thing. Um, so I was just hired just as a straightforward lecturer to do both teaching and research. Mm-hmm. The past 10 years, we've sort of got these different streams emerging a little more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I was also do always just to do teaching and research. Okay. And then so and the lectures kind of I find kind of uh, most interesting and kind of memorable, really, in general. And the kind of the lecture this book is kind of I I imagine that the book is kind of like a summary of the uh, evidence and inquiry lectures, essentially. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so what kind of inspired you to kind of curate those um, as you did? So just kind of give a bit of information on it. They're really inter- interactive, use a Hive platform that students can like uh, engage with as the se- uh, session goes on. So you do activities and kind of games and kind of mini experiments and you do live reactions to questions you put on the screen and you can see how everyone else is responding. Um, and it just kind of makes for kind of much more holistic all round experience. And my understanding of it was that it's kind of your response to um, the old traditional kind of almost Victorian lecture, which you felt was kind of outdated and not fit for purpose anymore. Yeah, that's right. And I think it all began. The impetus of it was that sort of memory of starting grad school and thinking that psychology was this body of theory that you had to memorize and regurgitate in exams and then getting to grad school and realizing no the valuable stuff is not really the facts and the theories it's the process and the method yeah 
sort of breakthrough moment when, you know, playing games or putting shapes on the screen and you can learn all this stuff. And that's what I found really exciting. So I was trying to bring that right to the first year because it took me an undergraduate degree and two years of grad school before I got there. I thought, well, can we introduce that idea that, um, you know, research is a verb, not a noun. You can do stuff and find stuff up really, really early. Um, So, yeah, that's where we sort of try to turn it all the way around and not gradually build up to doing your own experiments. Do them in the first term, do them in the first few weeks, do them in front of people and try and sort of pick apart the data. Definitely. And so you kind of became, uh, I suppose, well, like, you know, you went to the Eton thing for a week, two weeks, and said these teachers were much more exciting, much more engaged. It's kind of like what you're doing, but at university level, in a lot of ways, um, it's kind of being the kind of more exciting, engaged teacher rather than the kind of stern fact retailer. I, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um... Uh, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's kind of like an interesting link in. It kind of makes that makes sense on my side, at least, makes sense on my side. Um, and yeah, and so. Kind of you've been doing those and getting kind of provost awards for those um and yeah i think kind of um it makes me kind of wonder i suppose why you didn't become like a school teacher but i suppose you kind of already answered that in a lot of ways but i suppose a school teacher is much more like gets to be much more one-on-one have smaller classes and all the rest of it um i wonder if you get the same kind of um fulfillment out of like having a big large lecture hall uh, especially given that the lecture hall is kind of getting bigger and bigger now it's like 100 to 150 200 students do you find that you kind of um still get uh something out of it or do you feel quite I, i'd imagine you'd feel quite distant from the students because there's so many of them um yeah that's an interesting point um i think more broadly the best the thing about my job which is why it's a vocation and why they can pay us less than in america is <laughs> <laughs> is uh the basically i get to follow my own curiosity right i run experiments and stuff i want to find out about um and I, so i do i investigate whatever i want and i have this ready stream of really bright challenging young people to do the hard work for me yeah and that's just an insane luxury to think you know i want to understand how this works here's 10 people who are writing a dissertation project on me yeah. uh, and also to be sort of tugged by their curiosity them asking me questions i can't answer uh, and I increasingly sort of value this. The more I sort of talk to people outside of academia because of various consultancy stuff we do, you know, I talk to market researchers and they just, they don't understand that I get to ask my own questions and find them out. They're like, don't you have to make a business case for it? No, I just yeah. want to know how this works. Yeah, and yeah. I get to figure it out. That's an insane luxury, I think, that um, that I value very, very much that I wouldn't get to do if I was just lecturing or just writing. I got it. Research and teaching combination that's uh that suits me very well. That makes a lot of sense. And then final thing, uh sorry, I won't keep you too too much longer. Um, just about kind of some social psychology questions, I suppose. Um, whilst we have a social psychologist here. Um, you talk a lot about the power of the situation. Um, in a way, I suppose it makes sense. You're a social psychologist. Uh, maybe uh obviously that's gonna be your emphasis. Um so how would you think the power of the situation is on um, education in terms of uh, student outcomes? I don't know if maybe that's not your kind of specialism so much. When I was like looking at your recent papers, they're not education papers, I suppose. But what do you think the power of the situation is uh, for students and their education? Or do you think the kind of individual can kind of overcome 
any situation they're put into, whatever school they're put into, whether they get a tutor or not, whether they get these kind of taster days at university. Um, is there a kind of rule for like how much the situation, how far the situation can hold you back or how much you can overcome it? Yeah, that's a very, um, very difficult question. A good one, but a very difficult one. I think that we don't think very much about that and we should. So we're still stuck in sort of, well, I was talking about my Oxford experience where they sort of throw you into this incredibly challenging environment and hope that you sink or swim. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I found it very valuable. I did learn an enormous amount from my, from my tutors and from my peer group as well. And it's an incredibly valuable experience. I'm still very close friends with like 20 of them all stay together. And I think, but that just sort of happened almost by accident. And I don't think we do a great job of thinking, well, how could we structure the student's experience to make that more likely and to help their mental health and to give them a peer group? Mm -hmm. So is there ways that we could construct it so that you talked more with each other after class and had that sort of uh, peer interaction? Could we have more of an integration with like between the grad school and the undergraduate people? So they saw this is what a grad student is like. This is what they do. All that could be me one day. It sort of it does happen, but it happens almost by accident. And I think we could sort of structure things a bit better um, to make it more likely. This is something we're talking about at the moment at at UCL. You know, how do we get the sense of being a research community? Mm -hmm. And you get that sort of almost for free at things like Oxford colleges, because they've got this small size or universities that are in the countryside, mm-hmm. right? Because at UCL, we're in London, it's really easy for the students to go to lecture and then disperse. Yeah. And they miss some of them, not all of them, but it's easy for lots of students to lose that sense of that you're part of the academy, that you are in the ivory tower, you know, for better or for worse. This yeah. is where you are right now. And we should really give them the sense of belonging. Oh, definitely. So that would be, you feel like that sense of belonging it all kind of carries people through academically as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when you struggle, that's okay. Everyone struggles in this position. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it would be great if we could, yeah, construct the situation a little bit more. But it's really hard to do. It's very hard to do it sort of, these things are emerge organically, but they're very hard to say, you know, to detect to people, hang out with your peer group now, right? You yeah, can't definitely. You people to do it. But we are trying to think of is there ways that we can, make this happen a bit more definitely i think i agree i think that would uh i think that would carry people i do feel like a, a big difference between sick form in central london and the university in central london was that because it's a secondary school that's relatively small not really small but like relatively small you have your year group you are for better or worse in it together so you kind of come across all different kind of characters you wouldn't normally hang out with just because you're in it together there's no other choice you know and you get that's quite a rich experience as well because you're hanging out with people you would choose to and not choose to you know yeah, sitting, yeah. sitting next to someone in class you would choose to and not choose to you know all this kind of thing then at university by its very nature i think i don't think this is just ucl by the way by its very nature i think um and it's kind of more so you kind of access point into adult world where most times you really don't have to hang out with anyone you don't want to in adult world um I think uni is like that kind of step into that in as much as um, things do become a bit more, in my, in my view, kind of cliquier than they were before. You don't want, don't have to meet up with anyone you don't want to. don't have to sit next to anyone in lecture you don't want to. Um, that lack of um, obligation 
that you had kind of in school, that kind of the rigidity and discipline of school. Um, yeah, is that kind of thing about choices I think we see in psychology where people almost, you don't want the choice because <laughs> as soon as you get it, then uh, you're not forced into social interactions that would actually benefit you. Um, yeah. That's kind of how I, how I saw it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Daniel Richardson for coming on the podcast. Next time we have Dr. Alotokumbo Samwo, who comes on the podcast to talk to us about her experiences at medical school and beyond. See you next time. <laughs>